Today's episode is brought to you by Makerist. Makerist is your new favorite online craft destination and Europe's largest online pattern marketplace. And now they're expanding into the global market to bring their huge selection of PDF sewing, knitting, crochet, and embroidery patterns to crafters everywhere. Check it out at makerist.com. Thank you so much, Makerist. And now here's the show. Welcome to episode 183 of the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals where you can strengthen your creative business, stay up to date on industry news, and build connections within our supportive trade association. Check it out at craftindustryalliance.org. Today on the show, we're talking about building a yarn shop both online and brick and mortar with my guest, Kathy Elkins. Along with her husband, Steve, Kathy is the owner of Webbs, America's yarn store, located in Northampton, Massachusetts. Webbs was founded in 1974 by Steve's mother, and in 2002, Kathy and Steve assumed ownership. Kathy holds a BA in communication from the University of New Hampshire and an MBA from Suffolk University. She has extensive marketing experience in consumer products, as well as prior committee committee and board experience on various community organizations. Her most important role is that of being a mom to her two sons, Jackson and Jonathan. Kathy Elkins, welcome. Hey, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Abby. I'm so excited to talk with you and to hear the story of Webs. And I live not too far away in Massachusetts. Um, so I hope after the pandemic is over to make it out to Webs. My husband actually went to Amherst. So we are out in that area pretty frequently when he, he lo- loves to go to the Amherst reunion. So we get to go out there pretty frequently. Um, so I first would love to start by hearing the history of Webs because um, Webs was founded in 1974, which was the year before I was born. <laughs> so it's been in business for a long time. Um, and um, and so I know it was founded by Steve's mom, um, Barbara Elkins, and, and a business partner. Um, and it was really, in the beginning, all about weaving. So tell us about those early days. Sure. You know, Steve's mom, if she was here, she would tell you she started the business so that she could feed her own fiber habit. Um, She was a lifelong creator and maker um, across all pretty much every fiber craft. I don't think she was ever spun, but she pretty much did everything else um, as well as sewing and and, uh, whatnot. Um, But she and her partner decided that they um, wanted to start this business. Um, she actually had a hard time getting a small business loan because um, she didn't want my father-in-law to co-sign the loan. And the bank actually gave her a bit of a hard time back in the day. Um, but she uh, put her foot down and that all worked itself out. And the premise behind the business um, was when you learn to weave, typically you go to a studio. You go, you take your class, you work on your project, but you leave it all there. So she wanted to take it uh, in a different direction um, and sort of model it after um, 
how you uh, learn to play an instrument in school, like an elementary school. You rent the instrument for the, the school year. So she, that's what she did. She, um, uh, the fam- her and Art, and actually I think my husband at the time, he was little, um, went up to Harrisville and picked up um, half a dozen looms, um, portable looms, assembled them, and she started teaching. And because they were portable looms, smaller size, the students were able to come to her home take their lesson with her in the family basement and then bring the loom home. And the advantage to that, that she saw was a, they got to see the loom in their living space and could bond with it in a different way. And she just felt that that was going to have a longer term impact on, you know, people sticking with weaving and ultimately wanting to buy a loom. You know, there was a business aspect to it. Um, So that went on for a little bit. And um, her partner, Donna, decided that she really loved weaving. She did not like business and didn't want the two mixing in her world anymore. So they parted ways amicably. And uh, Barbara continued to go it on her own. And eventually, um, Steve and his brother and, and his dad wanted their basement back. Um, so, uh, this was, I want to say, so 74, so probably 77, 78 ish. Um, she moved out of the basement into, um, downtown Amherst, another basement location. It was where the police station was back in the day. Um, it's not in the same location anymore. The space doesn't exist. Um, it was about 800 square feet below street level, um, and had a back entrance. Um, and she set up shop there and, um, she, um, you know, Amherst is a big college town. You've got Amherst colleges. You were referencing, um, UMass is there. That's where my father-in-law, um, he was a professor there for many years. Um, so it's a relatively transient population, um, but also a young population and, um, knitting was starting to, um, become interesting. So she started bringing in some knitting yarns. And was um, she yes. was she teaching at all at the colleges? Did she teach at Hampshire, or did she have the weaving looms like at all part of the college, or no? No. Okay. No. All no. right. It was just uh, in this in this retail setting. Okay. Yes, correct. Um, and uh, as time went on, the business started to grow a bit, and she outgrew the space. So her and my father in law in the early eighties purchased a beautiful Victorian house in downtown Amherst and moved the business there. Um, And they were there for many years. That's where they were when um, Steve and I were first dating. And in fact, the day I came out to meet his parents for the first time was a Saturday. And I thought, well, we'll stop by the store. We'll check it out. I'd never been out here to Amherst. um, And I was from the Boston area. Um, And we ended up having to pick orders that afternoon. And I didn't know anything about yarn. I had learned to crochet um, when I was eight or nine years old, but that had long fallen by the wayside. And I knew nothing about knitting and I knew nothing about yarn. Um, So that was an interesting afternoon for sure. And And when, um, when Steve, when you met Steve and started dating and he told you that his parents owned a yarn store or a weaving and yarn store, what did you think? Um, I was impressed that they worked together and functioned together and apparently were very happy. Like that was like, that's a lot to take on. And in fact, it was a conversation Steve and I had when, when it got to be our turn to take over the business, what would we do if we couldn't work together? I mean, we both had had big jobs. We both have MBAs. We both manage people and budgets and whatnot. And we both got pretty strong personalities. Um, and we did have a plan, you know, the kids, our kids were little at the time. And I just said, look, if, if this doesn't work out, um, it's your family business, even though it's ours. Um, I said, so I'll step aside and figure out something else to do. And you can go forward, you know, 
on your own um, with the t- with the small team that we had at the time. Um, and it was we had a couple bumps, and we still have bumps. I mean, again, we we have strong opinions and whatnot. But um, yeah, I was just really impressed that they did that. And I and when we were taking over this business. I didn't know if Steve and I could do that. And I think that's probably of a lot of the accomplishments we've had over the years. That's one that I'm still really proud of. Yeah. So really the relationship was the thing that struck you the most. That's really interesting. And, um, and so, um, so when, um, so they moved into this, this Victorian house, I know in, in Amherst, which is a really a beautiful place. And I think now is it still a musical instrument shop? Yes, it's still a violin store. A violin store. Yeah, yeah. It's really beautiful. There was um, a a video made when you had your, I think it was your 40th anniversary, and you can see the inside of of what it looks like now. And so it's really very, very pretty. Um, And so um, the the intention was to stay there for for a long time, but then it sounds like you all quickly outgrew that space because of expansion. Yeah, it, it, uh, there was a Saturday when um, Art needed to use the restroom and the space was so crowded that he had to go out the front door of the building and go back in the back door in order to get to where the restrooms were. So he, at that point, he said, I think we need to find another location. And they really wanted to stay in Amherst, um, but there just wasn't anything suitable for their needs. Um And so Art found our space that we're currently in, and um, it was divided into three separate businesses all under one roof. And um, he brought Barbara over, and she said, absolutely not. There's no way this is going to work. And it had previously been a telephone company building. So when you go out into our warehouse where you can buy the closeouts, um, you can still see yellow lines on the floor from where the trucks park. And the floor ever so gradually... um, angles into the center so that when they wash the trucks and whatnot, all the water would flow and there's drainage there. Um, so the building was pretty grimy when Art showed it to Barbara and she was just like, she couldn't wrap her head around it. Um, but he persevered and um, they ended up leasing the space and cleaning it up. And the big window that we have in the front of the store used to be a pull-up garage door for the trucks to come in. Um, so a lot of work was done and um that's kind of what it was like when Steve and I came into the picture in 2002. There were still two other tenants in the building. Um, one left shortly after we came on board and um, we uh, added their space, created some more office space, had some more uh, warehouse space, which was great. Um, we had to enlarge and in uh, increase the size of the store um, after a couple of years because we bought so much yarn, we had nowhere to put it all. Um, so we moved the wall at the back of the store back into the warehouse area and doubled the size of the store from 2,500 square feet to 5,000. Um, so yeah, there was a lot, a lot of things going on. Um, okay. And so, so this was really Barbara's business and Art was a professor, as you mentioned earlier at UMass, that was his career. Um, what kind of professor was he? What, what did he specialize in? He was a professor in the Eisen School, uh, Eisenberg School of Business, and he was a tenured professor. And it was, I want to say, mid '80s when he he had been, he had worked in the store, you know, on weekends. He helped Barbara with the the books and things like that. Um, and uh, he decided to retire and join Barbara full time. And Everybody in the school of business thought he was nuts. I, he, I imagine so, because often when one retires, they don't then have an entire other career that's very busy, which is retail. 
Um, and it's, and in that, and back in those those you know twenty thirty years ago, tenured professor was a big deal. I mean, it that, is. You were, you were there for it's life. It's still a huge deal. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So um, so yeah, everybody and, and you know it's funny we've done Steve and I have done presentations at Eisenberg over the years for different classes and whatnot, and the professors who are still there who were there when Art was there every time we see them like yeah we thought he was we thought he had lost his mind. And so do they, do they still think that or do they no, change? No, they, they, they see, they can now see what he saw. Um, which was, sure. which was what, what did he see? I think he saw the potential to grow the business and, um, you know, it's, it started, you know, it started as zero. It's, you know, and I think that's something that's really interesting. Like people look at webs today and like, oh, you're so big and we are big. There's no question about it. I mean, it started with, Barbara and one other person and then it was just Barbara for a while and it grew over time um, but we weren't always a 90 person organization we started small just like every other LYS has started um, you know and a, a lot of luck and um, I think not um, treating this as a hobby but truly as a business um, has has helped us, and you know, but there was a lot of a lot of lucky breaks along the way. I mean, when Steve and I came on board, the internet was just becoming a thing, and thank God, places like the Gap made it accessible um, for people to buy soft goods and textiles online. Because who would have ever thought twenty years ago you'd buy yarn online? I mean, it's such a tactile process. Um, yeah, let's talk about that for a moment because um, I know, you know, Tony Shea just passed away. Um, he was the founder of Zappos. And one of the things that Tony gave us um, when he was um, the leader of Zappos and the and the the um, the person that he he really was, and you can read his in his book Delivering Happiness, um, which is such a fantastic business book, is that you know he saw that people would actually buy shoes online, and especially women, but people in general would buy shoes online, and that was something that that everybody said nobody would ever do, nobody would buy shoes online, and he said, well, if you give them free shipping and free returns, they will, they will buy shoes online. And, uh, and he was, he was right, of course. Um, we all, we all now realize that, of course, people will do that. Um, but there was a time when, when everybody said, no, they won't. And, um, and I think what you're saying is, is you benefited from, from that, you know, as much as anybody. So, um, so can you talk a little bit about that notion of nobody will buy yarn online and, and what your perspective there is? Yeah. I, you know, again, I, I, I think back, you know, in the early 2000s, as the internet was just becoming a thing, um, I think the average consumer really couldn't wrap their head around, like, what am I going to do with this internet thing? Like, what is that? Um, and, you know, we had an informational website when Steve and I took over. Um, there was little, if any, buying going on there. I'm not even sure if we had a shopping cart at when we took over. Um, we obviously had yarn.com, but I don't, I don't even think we had a shopping cart at that point. Um, and so, you know, we took baby steps with that. I mean, we were getting, once we started to to sell online, you know, 10 orders a day was awesome. And then Christmas hit and we were up to 22 orders a day. And it was just, you know, we were, we were like, wow, this is awesome. Um, and, you know, it, it was so antiquated. We couldn't, we could, we didn't have a system, a backend system to talk to the website. You know, we were running regular registers, like, literally play school registers 
Um, and we had, so when we started shipping, we just had basic credit card machines, but we would have to hand write out every order in order for our two pickers. We had two pickers and packers. We now have a warehouse full of them. Um, but we would hand write out all of the orders and we would get orders in the mail. Um, and it was just, uh, it was just a crazy, crazy process that we had. Um, and, you know, as the years went by, every holiday season, we'd see a spike up in orders, which we would expect. Um, but then when we'd come out the other side into the next year's Q1, we the volume would drop down a bit, but it would plateau higher than we did before. And that's where we, we just saw that steady growth year over year over year. Um, you know, and I think for us, you know, direct mail was something that Art and Barbara started doing very, very early on. Um, we used to, and it was still happening when Steve and I came on board, we used to send sample packets out. And we had um, uh, sample makers. We had a big, huge table in an office space that is completely changed now. Um, and they would wind yarn and cut little, like, four-inch snippets of all the colors. And it would be a little, like, a half a sheet of paper printed out with the yarn name and all the colors and the, the fiber content and all the specs that you needed. And we'd put the samples in, fold it in half, and we'd mail those out to our customers. Um, and you might get 10 or 12 different sample packets in each mailing. And it would go with an order form. And then they would come back, they'd send in their order, or they'd call in their order. Um, this, this was, again, pre-internet times. And so our customers sort of already had that first step and morphing from that mail order mentality to internet and to catalog um, was somewhat of a natural progression for us. And our customers were used to um, doing things from afar with us. You know, again, it was a transient population. We would get customers when they would be here, you know, as students or teaching professors or whatever the case may be, they'd graduate, they'd move on, but they still wanted to buy from us. So, Finally, um, you know, doing the sample packets got to a point where we were doing so many in a month that by the time we got them out the door, it was time to, like, we didn't have any breathing room at all. And that was then the birth of our very first all of 16 pages catalog. And that was in 2004, if my memory serves me correctly. So I think I think some of the, the, the foundations that Art and Barbara uh, laid for the business early on unbeknownst to them, really set us up in a great position to take on new technology as it came along. I want to take a minute now to talk with Holly Dagger from our sponsor, Makerist. Hi, um, I'm Holly. I'm the manager of Makerist.com. We're uh, Europe's largest online patent marketplace, and we're looking to expand to the global market this year. And tell me how makers and pattern designers can get started selling their patterns on Makerist. Um, so it's really easy, actually. Uh, there's just a little button that says sell on Makerist on our website. Um, and then you go in, you give us a copy of the kind of patterns that you work with and a little blurb about yourself. And then our design relations consultant gets back to you within one or two days, um, and she helps you set up your shop. She helps you optimize your SEO text. We set up everything for you. You don't have to do anything like that. And we also support you with um, graphic assets and on-site sales and things like that. So it's a really simple kind of hands-off process. 
That's great. And um, is there a fee structure involved? Is there like a transaction fee or how does that part work? With designers, we do take a percentage commission from every purchase that's made, but we don't have any listing fees. We don't have any shop fees or anything like that. So you only uh, pay us once you start earning money. Wonderful. Okay, that's terrific. And what kind of patterns are accepted? Like which kinds of crafts? We take uh, patterns for sewing of any kind, um, garment or toys or upholstery, anything you like, uh, knitting, crochet, um, plotting files, and embroidery and cross-stitch. Okay. And so if somebody's just getting started, let's just say they only have, I don't know, a handful of patterns that they've designed, um, can they apply or do they need to have like a whole portfolio ready? No, no, it's very, we're very focused on uh, small businesses. Um, so if you only have one pattern, but you're really passionate about that one pattern, we'd still love to have you. Oh, great. So somebody who's just beginning can can already get started. That's that's good news. Yeah, yeah okay. Um, and it sounds like this would be a great way to um, maybe get some exposure into the European market, um, which is something that maybe some American designers too might struggle with. So that that's a, a neat way to diversify your income. Definitely. And we also offer support for translating your patents into German and French, which are our other two major markets. Where can we go check this out? Uh, you can find us at uh, www.makerist.com. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Holly. Thank you so much, Makerist. And now back to my conversation with Kathy. <music> yes, absolutely. And the way that you got yarn.com was essentially art was looking to find webs.com and webs.com wasn't available. Is that right? Right. Correct. And so he was like, well, what else can I get? And this was, yes, this must've been in like 99 or something. This was in 92. Oh gosh. It was, a, it was a wall street journal article that said, if you have a business, there's this thing called the internet that's coming <laughs> and you need a thing called a URL. Okay. And I don't know. And I've never closed this loop with him. And every time I do an interview, I'm like, God, I've got to go back and ask him this question. And then I forget. Um, so I don't know if he faxed in a request to somewhere. Right. I don't know if he mailed it. He certainly didn't Google it because that wasn't a thing. No, no. Right. Um, but yeah. So Webbs was taken. He took, he got yarn. I always joke that I should be sitting in my Tahiti, you know, hut had he taken knitting.com and weaving.com and all the other things. Yeah, back he needed all the URLs, but he at least he got the one. At least he got the yarn, yes. So, and, um, um, and why did Barbara and Donna call the business Webs? Is Webs short for something? No, you know, we get asked that a lot. And I have a funny story, but I'll give you the definition first. So in weaving, you have a warp, which is the, the uh, vertical part that you put on first. And then you weave with the weft and together they form a web okay and that was it it's called a web and, and that that's why she named it web. and so it's all in capitals not because it's an acronym just because it's all in capitals yep just because it's all in capitals but it's funny when steve and i started going to some tech conferences outside of the the yarn world you know it would always say webs and people would be like oh webs like what kind of tech company do you like oh i've got all these services you're gonna love them and we're like no we we sell yarn they're like oh yarn really oh and look look you're married 
How cute is that? Oh, look, Joe, this little couple, they have a knitting store and, and they're married. And but and then they would not even talk to us. Right. Because they're just like, okay, you don't you're you don't count you're, anymore. You do not count. <laughs> you're like, truly, it's actually a really good business, but that's okay. You can move on now. <laughs> okay. All right. So um so moved to North to, to Northampton from Amherst. Um and then um and then there was there was a feeling of of um that that um that art and Barbara had that it, it was time for them to retire. They were they were feeling done, and um, and it, it sounds like they they did actually look for some external buyers. There was some interest in the market to sell webs, and um, and as you said, you and Steve had your own careers. You were you were you know doing other things, and um, it wasn't immediately obvious that that it was going to be passed down in the family. So what happened there? How did um, how did you end up actually taking over the family business? Well, Art and Barbara had asked us a couple of times if we were interested. And to your point, we did have our own careers. We had great jobs. We were in Boston. We were young. You know, we had a, a, our own home. And it's like, why would we leave, you know, our beautiful window offices in the city and, you know, our friends and our life here to be in Western Mass? Because, you know, because you're in the Boston area. West of Worcester doesn't exist to a lot of people. They just think it's all cow pastures and farmland. And there's a lot, there is a fair amount of that, but there's also a, a really thriving community out it's here. It's a nice place to live, but it's definitely it's, quieter. Yes. It's a great place to live. Um, so uh, they, so uh, they'd asked a couple times, we declined. Um, then uh, Steve uh, had a job transfer. He was working for Pepsi at the time and they moved us to Connecticut Um our son Jackson was born, and then 18 months later, we had our son Jonathan. And um, Steve was working a million hours. He was missing a lot of stuff. I was staying at home with the kids, which was great. But it was also starting to get to be a time where I was thinking, you know, preschool was going to start happening for my older son. And I thought, you know, maybe I need to start looking at something part-time, get my, you know, dip my toe back into the workforce a little bit. Um, and Art and Barbara came to us and said, you know, we have a serious buyer who, you know, they have the money. This isn't going to fall apart like a couple of the other deals have. Um, and we're going to sell. And we, but we'd really like you to consider it one more time. So at this point, we have two little kids. We're in Connecticut. I'm not working, and Steve's working 16 hours a day. And I said, you know, I think we should have your parents come down and let's hear them out. So they came down. They made a full PowerPoint presentation to us. They had financials. We sat in our family room. And it art. sounds like they really wanted. They really wanted you to take it over. They didn't want to sell to an outside buyer. Like they did want you. Yeah. And and the truth behind that is. Art wanted to retire, but Barbara did not. But she wouldn't tell us that because she thought it would scare us off. And so after they um, made this presentation, I said, you know what? I think this is what we should do. And Steve was like, mm, I don't think so. I don't think this is what I want to do. And so Art and Barbara and I would have talks during the day while the kids were napping. I would be on the phone with them and they're like, why doesn't he want to do this? Why, what's this holdup? And I said, well, you raised a really great kid to, and you, you raised him to go and find his own way. And now he feels like coming back it would be kind of resting on, you know, your laurels and not, you know, his own, you know, his own success. Um, and so it took some time. Fortunately, Pepsi, the grind started to get old. And um, after a couple of months, we were able to convince him that this would be a good idea. And um, so that was in the fall of 01. And the other thing that happened at 
point in time, obviously, was 9-11. And um, how much of an influence that had on his decision, his aspect of the decision, I I don't know. Um, But I know it definitely played a part in our thinking. Um, So we waited until the spring of 2002 um, before we really started to get involved. Um, There was a few things with Pepsi that we had to wait on um, from a financial standpoint, some bonus payouts and whatnot. So we we didn't do anything for about five or six months. Um, And then um, we started coming in from Connecticut. We built a house here. Um, I started working part-time and Steve's parents stayed on. um, I think the arrangement was 18 months. I don't even think Art made it to a year. I think we got to the point where we were pretty good to go. And that's when Barbara said, I'm not retiring, but I don't want to be involved in day-to-day anymore. And she goes, I want to come in and weave. I want to deal with the weaving customers that I want to deal with. I want to teach. And that's all I want to do. So, and that's how it is. And up until this pandemic, that's still how it was 18 years later. Wow. Um, yeah, she truly loves what she does. I mean, to have started this in 1974 and up until the pandemic to still be coming in weaving, working with the weaving customers. I mean, that's the heart of what it was from the very beginning. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Right. Um, so yeah, so then, you know, we, like I said, we got really lucky with our timing with the internet coming, um, on board and the fact that knitting, um, hit a tremendous wave in the 2002, three, four, five years um, with the scarf craze and novelty yarns. And business took off. It was it was crazy. I mean, we were ordering um, railroad yards and eyelash yarns by huge quantities, huge, 10, 20, 30 bags of a color. We don't care what colors you have in stock. We don't care what brand it is. Just if you have stock and you can ship to us, bring it on. Um, so we went through a pretty serious growth there up until the recession in that 08-ish range. I mean, the, the scarf yarn thing sort of died out, I want to say in like 07, I think it was. And then the recession happened. Um, and we learned a really valuable lesson that um, downtimes um, tend to be pretty good times for craft businesses. Um, you know, I can remember working with a customer distinctly during the, the height of the recession and her saying, look, if I have to be home and can't go out to the movies because we can't afford it or we can't go out to dinner, I can't go out and meet my friends for a couple of drinks. If I'm going to have to stay home and really batten down the hatches um, to weather to weather this, um, I need to have yarn or I'm going to kill my husband. If I can't knit at night and I have to sit at home with him, I'm going to kill him otherwise. She's like, so that's this is where I'm spending what little extra money I have is here. And I just chuckled. I'm like, wow, how many of our other customers are coming in here thinking that exact same thing, but just not, not admitting it out loud. Yeah. That's a great thing to keep in mind. Absolutely. That's so, that's so important for, for craft businesses to, to know and certainly applicable to what we're going through right now, as we've seen, which we'll, which we'll talk about that. That is so true. So, um, so I want to talk about how you first sourced knitting yarns before knitting yarns were something that were easy to source. So back when um, knitting first began to be something that was um, a trend uh, and art was sourcing these yarns, they were really mill end yarns. Is that right? So in the textile industry was something that um, happened in Massachusetts. There's lots of, of mills and um, 
uh, well, the ones that were still left, I guess. And and so um, so Art and Barbara would go to these mills and um, and basically buy these these yarns that were left over from production of of clothing, basically. And and so talk a little bit about how they did that and and why that was necessary. Then I mean, what what was it like at that time to try to source knitting yarns? Well, you know, I don't think they really knew how to source, but they were they were approached with closeouts, um, particularly on the weaving side, because there's not a lot of branding in weaving. Even till today, there's just, you know, there's a plethora of knitting yarn brands, and there have been throughout the years. I mean, you know, Barocco has been around as long as we have, if even longer, honestly. Um, Lopi, things like that. Um, but... Um, Mill ends and closeouts were sort of the first foray into their sourcing. And um, yes, there were mills here in New England, but there was a predominance of textile mills down in the south. So Art and Barbara would go down to North South Carolina. They'd look for the water towers, as Art would tell the story, because the mills needed water. So they tended to be built near the water towers. And he would go and, you know, this was long before any technology. So if, you know, Ralph Lauren was having sweaters made in a mill somewhere in South Carolina, you know, he might order 100 blue, 75 red, 50 green, um, you know, and there wasn't the technology for sourcing for the mill to source and have the exact right amount of yarn. So there was always leftovers or mill ends. So I would go in and negotiate and buy them. He bought a great chenille closeout um, from a, a mill that made um, bath towels. And when that ran out, he thought, well, why don't we just recreate this yarn on our own? And so that was really how it started. And I think he just started peeling back the layers of trying to figure things out. We've had a long-standing relationship um, with a mill rep um, based in Rhode Island. Originally, it was um, the uncle um, of the, the gentleman who runs it now. And he and Art, I don't know quite how they met, um, but he was able to give Art some some connections and our family still uses them. There's still somebody who reps us with several of the mills that we we work with. They've opened our eyes to new mills over the years as Steve and I have grown um, aspects of the Valley brand. Um, And it just, it just sort of took off from there. It was just all, it was a very organic process. And, but I also think a lot of the, the, um, education that Art had. I mean, he holds a PhD, um, having taught in the business school for years, he had a lot of different contexts. And I think, you know, that's just how his brain works. He's a very process logical person. And, you know, he was able able to figure out how to get in and out and and figure out how to get yarn sourced. Um, When we took over, most of what they had was almost predominantly all weaving, although there were two or three Monterey and a couple of others that could be used for hand knitting yarns. Um, And, you know, it was something for Steve and I that we thought, you know, this could be something that we could grow. And, you know, and it's funny that 2002, 2003 timeframe, if you go back, so many companies in our industry were happening then, like Jimmy Beans was coming online, Nitpicks was coming online, Lorna's Laces opened then in that timeframe. And there's a, a whole slew that happened, um, again, just as this crazy yarn, um, crazy scarf yarn time was happening. Um, it's sort of a perfect storm, if you will. Um, and so you know, we took what mill contacts Art and Barbara had at the time and just started to build on those. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Such a different time period. It's so interesting how it all kind of came together. Um, yeah, that that is so fascinating. Okay. Um, uh, so, and I, I know that, um, let's talk a little bit about um, uh, what the, build, the business was like when you did take over. So it was much, much smaller um, when you when you came on board. I think um, how many employees were on staff at that time? Something like 11 or, or fewer? Yep, there were 11 of us and four of us had the same last name. Okay. <laughs> so it was truly a small family um, when, yes. you, when you came on board. And I think you mentioned earlier there's something like 90 now is yeah, that so somewhere right around that number we've um I've, I've lost a little bit of track of track of it all in the pandemic because yeah. we've been adding so many people yeah in our warehouse pick and pack operation sure sure um at, that um but prior I, I, prior to this this crazy crazy year um somewhere somewhere around there so so and it and and so when you when you first came on um as as business partners, you bought this business and um, and took it over. What were some of the things that you that you started to do, and and how? What was your vision? How did you think about growing it together? And what what are the roles that you each took on? I mean, are you co CEO, or are are there separate things that you each are in charge of? And how did you figure that part out as well? Well, we were lucky enough that we have pretty complementary skill sets. You know, Steve's background is in finance and operations. My background is in marketing and retail. Um, so that was a pretty clear delineation, and we knew we needed to have a dividing line between us. Um, HR fell into my world. Um, I picked that short straw, um, unfortunately, and I still kind of hold on to it today to a certain extent. Um, but yeah, that was that was something that was important to Steve and I, I think again, because we had had, I mean, we managed people, we managed really big budgets. I mean, I worked on Tommy Hill for Tommy Hilfiger um, in a licensee agreement for footwear. Um, you know, I was there, I was involved when we did a Super Bowl ad. So, you know, we knew where our strengths and weaknesses were. And that doesn't mean we did everything unilaterally, not at all, but we definitely had a clear delineation of sort of who was the default person for certain aspects of the business. And honestly, when we first took over, um, I didn't have a desk. We had one computer between the four of us. Um, the day I got my own desk and my own computer was huge. I bet. But for me, it was, you know, how am I ever going to learn who's distributing what yarns? Like, what's a who's a Barocco and who has Lang and What's the, it was just, you know, it was all, it was all foreign language to me. So, you know, early on, that was a big part of what I did. We would make color cards at home at night. We'd rewrite the orders at home at night or during, or, you know, I might come in. I was only part-time to begin with, because again, the kids were little and that, that evolved over time. But um, yeah, I mean, we had two people picking and packing our orders and um, that was it. It, it was I mean, it's uh, it's so old fashioned speaking, talking about it now and comparing to where we are today. And, you know, sometimes Steve and I look at each other. It's like, how did we ever get to ourselves here? You know, um, it's 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 really kind of crazy when I when I have these conversations with folks and, and think back about it. Um, you know, again, the store was running off of a basic register. There was no technology. There was no you know, we'd run the report and get the register tape at the end of the day to see what our sales were. I mean, it's just, you know, now I can click any time during the day and see exactly where we're at. I can see exactly who's picked what, who's packed what, 
you know, I have a whole dashboard where I can see that. Right. That wasn't back in the day. And so technology is really important into to the way that you run your business now. I mean, to a certain degree, Webs is a is a tech company. I mean, I know you go to tech conferences, it sounds like. And, and there is a degree to which, I mean, um, I don't know what the percentage breakdown is between um, sales from the brick and mortar and sales online, but I'm going to just guess that the online sales way, way outweigh the brick and mortar by, you know, some huge percentage, just that would yeah, be my, absolutely. okay, so I'm right on, I'm right on there. Yeah, right on. And it's skewed even more now. I mean, the store, sure, sure. Pre, pre-pandemic, the store in and to itself did a wonderful number, but in comparison to what we do online, yeah, it's, it's, it's tiny, you know, being closed for three months and trying to come back and now going through a second surge here in mass, um, you know, it's been a really big roller coaster, and we had been making a lot of good strides, uh, you know, until the last two or three weeks where, you know, here in Mass, the cases are really spiking. Yeah, they are. Yeah. And I think people are self are, are, are self-selecting themselves out, out of coming out to shop. Yeah. Which, which is, is a good, honestly, it's a good thing. Right. They need to be safe. Uh, absolutely. But, um, right. But technology is, you know, investing in the, the user experience on the website, investing in the back end on the website is got to be really, really important to making webs function then because, um, that's what it's all about. As you had, we talked about, Steve and I started going to some tech conferences. Internet retailer was a new conference in the mid 2000s. I believe it was, um, maybe a little bit later. Um, and we went to the very first one at a hotel in Chicago. It's now held at the McCormick Center, and it's huge. But the first one was just in a in the downtown Hyatt in Chicago. And, and we went. And after two and a half days, I finally looked at Steve. I said, I can't go to one more session. My head is going to explode. I literally laid down in the hallway at the Hyatt because literally I thought my head was going to explode. I said, we have to go to the airport right now and just go home. I said, I can't, I can't do any more of this, you know? And it was, you know, it was like, it's sort of like everything we've done, you know, it was baby steps. It was missteps. It was, you know, we, we had two really bad website launches over the years, uh, really, really bad. Um, but we've taken baby steps along the way and, you know, Steve and I met when we both worked um, for the same company. We were in two different offices, but we had the same job. And the it was a small family-owned company, and the owner um, really liked Steve and I for whatever reason. And, you know, he said to us, you know, you need to make sure you always surround yourself with really smart people, people who are smarter than you in areas that you don't know anything about in particular, but in general, surround yourself with really smart people wherever you go in your career. You know, and that's something we've taken to heart. You know, we have, you know, we have one woman who started in the store with us um, part time. Her kids were little. And then we had an, we created a new position, um, sort of a fulfillment position, someone to do all of our reordering and, you know, manage the flow of inventory and whatnot. And um, we said, you know, we think you'd be really great at doing this. And she's like, no, I can't do that. That's, that's not my skill. We're like, no, we think you can do it. Put her in the role. She was a rock star. Then when um, we went onto the platform that we have today for our website, we needed someone to manage that and, you know, really make the front end of the website and the back end talk. And we're like, you know, we really think you can do this job. We think you'll be great at it. She's like, oh, gosh, I absolutely can't do that job. We're like, we think you can. So we put her in the job and she's still there and she's a rock star. She has a team now of six people that work with her. Um, we have an outside agency that um, helps um, with the, the hardcore tech stuff, um, but all the content, all the merchandising, 
Um, all of the design, all of the layout, all the functionality is all driven by our internal team. Um, you know, and it's, it's things, you know, we started doing AdWords internally. Well, that got out of control. So now we have an outside company who does that for us. Um, so, you know, we, we try to be smart about what our core strengths are and bring teams in or bring, you know, an outside expert in a third party to help support us where it makes, where it makes sense. Um, so, um, yeah, it's, you know, we've got a really great team and it's grown over the years and, um, you know, we love being able to promote from within, but sometimes we need a skill set or we just need to sort of, sh- you know, shake up the dynamic of bringing someone external in. It's a, it's a balance between the two. Um, I always joke that, you know, we need to bring outside life into the company um, for a, from a learning standpoint and also so we don't start to turn into a Petri dish that's kind of rotting. Yeah. You know, we need that. Yeah, that external perspective. Absolutely. Yeah, that's important. And then in 2018, you bought Taki Stacy Charles. And I'm interested to know um, what the um, sort of impetus was there to to buy this um, yarn brand, but also to buy string in New York and and sort of how that went for you. Yeah, um, Diane Friedman and T- Stacy Charles um, were partners. Diane had owned and run Taki Yarns. Stacy always said Stacy Charles, um, and you know we had known them for years. They came twice a year to present to us the new collection, the new designs. We had gotten to be very, very dear friends, and Diane was at a point where she was ready to move on and retire. And this was a conversation we had over, I don't know, two or three years at least. You know, they first broached us, you know, we were sitting here, we had finished a buy meeting and Diane's like, what do you think about buying us? And, you know, we all laughed, that kind of nervous, like, ha, 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 that's so funny. Six months later, they came back. She's like, so have you given it any thought? And we giggled a little more. And so that's kind of how it went for a while. And then finally, um, so it must have been 2017, um, they came up to see us and said, look, Diane said, look, I really want to be done. Stacy doesn't. We really want him. I really want him. And he really wants to have another partner um, and not go it alone. Would you give this some consideration seriously? And so we did and, you know, went through due diligence and all the things you have to do with an acquisition. Stacy had bought String Yarns, the store, from Linda Morse, the original founder. She ran the store, I think, for like nine years. And then she was ready to retire. And it was one of Stacy's um, biggest customers, um, both for S. Charles and Filatore de Croso, which was a brand um, he distributed that was out of Italy. And so he didn't want to lose the customers, so he bought the store um, and kept it going. And um, so that was just part of the deal that came along with it. And it, it was such... String is such a different proposition retail-wise than yeah. Rams. I mean, it's completely opposite. I mean, it's it's in the heart of the city where – It's this Western. boutique little – yeah. Boutique. It was tiny. We have office space bigger than String. <laughs> right. Um, right. It was, you know, but it was at an iconic location at 74th and Lex. It has a, a, a dedicated Upper East Side following – and Steve and I felt like there was opportunity there for us that we could grow a different retail experience, maybe not to a web size, but, you know, we felt we had some best practices that we could implement. And um, and I think, do you learn about a different kind of customer through that? I, I don't know. Are there learnings you take back? Yeah. The way the, the string um, team worked with the customer, completely opposite. 
I bet. It's a, it's just, it's a really different, very different. Yes. You know, um, finishing at string is a huge thing. They, they're great knitters, incredibly talented knitters, but they don't want to seam anything together. So they bring it all back. We don't do that at webs. We will make you take a a finishing class so you can learn how we'll show you how to use a ball winder in Swift, but we're not going to do it for you. You know, so it's a definitely, it's very high touch. It's very high touch. Very high touch. It's great. It's New York. It's different. (laughs) You know, and it's interesting with this pandemic, you know, someone would, you know, be at home or they'd come to our drop in at string and be like, Oh, I dropped a stitch. Can you fix it for me? And the staff would be like, you really should be able to do this on your own. They're like, no, no, no. We just want you to fix it for me. I just want you to fix it for me. So we've been doing Zoom drop-ins all during this pandemic. And, you know, the customers haven't been able to have someone do it for them. They've had to learn how to do it themselves. So that is going to be a whole interesting thing post-pandemic. Yeah, that's the theme of this pandemic. Learn how to do it yourself, uh, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, so interesting. And um, and I know you've had you had a podcast for a long time, and I think it started out as a local radio show. Is that right? And which is such an interesting way to start a podcast. I know you're not alone in having a podcast that starts as a radio show, but um, but it is um, it is kind of a unique way to start a podcast. So um, so what was that experience like for web? And and how did it serve you? Um, because I know a, a podcast can really serve a business in a, in a really positive way. Yeah, it was, you know, it was a tre- tremendous experience. It's, it was, it's a local radio station and they had had syndicated programming on Saturday mornings and wanted to get a move away from that model. Um, and so they approached a handful of local businesses that they thought could be interesting and do a podcast. And our ad rep at the time, who had become a very good friend of mine, came over and she's like, came to my office and she's like, Kathy, you guys need to do this podcast thing. It'll be awesome. And Steve and I share an office and he turned around and he's like, hell no, we're not, we're not doing that. That's ridiculous. And I said, slow down. I, let me, let's, let's talk this through. And we did. And we decided to go for it. Um, the first few shows, oh gosh, they were so horrible. We were so bad. As were the, my first few shows, by the way. <laughs> so yeah, bad. Well, that's just part of the process. It is. It's just part of the process. But, you know, we got our rhythm down. And, um, you know, for us, it was another way of connecting with our community and with our customer base. You know, we have the store. We have the internet. We have email we were doing consumer shows and we just felt this was another, uh, another outlet for us to interact with our customers. Um, you know, so we structured it. I would do an interview with a guest. In fact, I was listening to a, one of our old shows last night cause I'm doing an interview um, with someone here in the industry um, on Friday. And she asked me if I would do the interview with this new book that she has coming out um, because I did, I interviewed her twice over the years on our podcast, ready, set, knit. So I was listening back on those two shows last night. And um, the first one we had, started that Steve would do the beginning of the show talking about yarns and then I would do the interview in the second show and then we flipped it after a period of time just to kind of mix things up and we thought the flow would be better but you know we launch each show with a little bit of chitter chatter about what was going on what was happening with the family my kids things like that and then I would do an interview with somebody in the industry um, we'd take a break and then Steve would come back and wax poetic about whatever new yarns or tools or books or whatever it is that we that had come in and 
Um, and it was great. And we had great um, listenership and we had great interaction. You know, we might be talking about, you know, my kids were hockey players when they were little. So we might, you know, be saying, oh, yeah, big game this weekend. We can't wait. And if we didn't give the results the next week, we'd get emails like, what happened with the hockey game? <laughs> which was awesome. Which was awesome. And, you know, it was a lot of fun, but it's, we had a, a date every Wednesday at one o'clock was when we recorded, we aired at 930 on Saturdays. Um, and then it would go up as a podcast right after. Um, and it was great that we had that discipline that we had to be there. Um, you know, we, we had a lot of crazy things happen over the years, guests not showing up or, you know, Steve not being able to get, you know, back from a trip somewhere. So I had to do, I had to be Steve. It was always hard for us to do the show without the other, um, because we, you know, that was part of our dynamic. We bounced off each other. Um, so whenever one of us had to do it by ourselves, we're all like, Oh my God, we can't ever do that again. That was so hard. Um, but after 10 years and over 500 episodes, um, it started to become a bit of a chore and not as much fun. And our longtime producer um, was leaving the station um, to move cross country um, with his partner. And we just, you know, all those things together just made it feel like this was the time to stop. Um, and so we did. Um, we did our last show and uh, didn't look back until this year. And it's it's been, float, it was floating in my head prior to the pandemic. But now that we've been doing all these virtual shows, and creating content in a different way than we did before, we're actually starting to think Ready, Set, Knit may come back, but in a different format. I think it would be more video-based. It would be more of a vlog than, than a, a, just a podcast. Um, so that's, that's bouncing around in my head. I haven't been able to spend a lot of, of bandwidth on it just because of everything else that's going on. But, um, but it's definitely sitting out there and I, I feel like there's a reason to be. And I've watched other people in our industry, including a couple of our sales reps who are doing some really interesting things um, and creating content in, a, in an interesting way that is also piquing my interest to kind of get back into it. So just have to sort of sort through what that's going to look like, what the structure of it would be, what the frequency would be, how we fit that in. Because again, the thing that was great about our podcast is we had to be there every Wednesday at one. Like, you know, some weeks we can't if we were traveling for a show or something and we would do two record two shows or they do a repeat show but it was really good discipline and it's just so easy you know I give you credit you know it's so easy for yourself to be like ah, I'm just not going to do it this week or oh I'm too busy to do it Wednesday at one I'll do it Thursday at four and then Thursday at four passes by the wayside and then you know time goes by um so that was something that was important for Steve and I there was a good habit building for Steve and I so um, yeah, some, some things to think about for down the road into 2021 for sure. And I know we were talking right before we hit record about what the pandemic has been like for you because you were saying that you had nothing to recommend um, during the recommendation section because you've just been so busy. And so tell us a little bit um, in lieu of recommendations just about what it has been like for you over these past eight months when, you know, I think everybody else, maybe or not everybody, but so many of us have been quarantining at home. Um, but of course, as you mentioned, we all need yarn and other craft supplies to keep our sanity and feel relaxed and be able to pass the time um, in a way that feels productive. But that all comes from places like web. So what has it been like for you during this pandemic? Yeah, so we had to close the store March 20th. And it was right around that time where um, orders really started to spike. Steve and I had been out of the country on vacation at the end of February. We came back on March 9th. 
And when we left, we'd been gone for 10 days. When we left, COVID was just sort of becoming a thing um, here in the States. Um, we were on a tiny little island in the Caribbean, and they didn't even know what we were talking about, honestly. So for 10 days, we lived in a bubble. And we came back to going through San Juan Airport, everybody being masked or a lot of the people being masked. The cruise ships had all come into port. It was nuts. And we were like, oh, wow, we've really got to figure out what's going on here. So we got back. Um, the order came to close the store. We actually sent our administrative team home the week after we got back. We said, just start working from home. Let's let's batten down right from the get-go. And in fact, the week we got back, we um, locked down the warehouse, our, our facility in East Hampton. Um, nobody in, unless you're an employee, no appointments, no deliveries, everything, you know, the, we would unload the trucks kind of thing. Um, the orders went off the rails mid mid to late March and it hasn't slowed down since. Um, like, like not even like holiday kinds of levels of orders, like levels of orders like we have never seen ever in, in this business, maybe a day here or a day there. And then has your supply chain though been so disrupted? You know, we really worried about our supply chain and it was good for a very long time. We've had this, we were able to get through the spring. We were, we were so fortunate because we had already stocked up for our anniversary sale, which normally happens in April and May. So we were overstocked. So that was a good thing. Um, you know, we don't source from China at all. And they had been locked down once Italy got locked down, that got dicey. Um, but again, it took a while for that to rear its head. It really, we didn't really see a lot of issues until the fall, quite honestly. Um, and, uh, and then Peru, South America, when they, when the summer hit and it went into their winter time, that's when things worsened there. Um, and they're still bouncing back, but, um, yeah, the supply chain wasn't, as bad as we thought it was going to be. We're seeing, and we're seeing some things happening now too, that are a little concerning. You know, Italy's not locked down, Peru isn't, but they still have capacity issues and things that like that, that they're dealing with. And sometimes it's not even the mill where the yarn is being produced. It may be where they're getting their supply from, or Italy, a lot of mills just spin yarn. They don't dye yarn the way they do in Peru. They go to a dye house, you know, so the dye house, the dye house might have supply issues for their goods. And, you know, it's just this ripple effect, but yeah, we, we, put our team on a seven day work schedule pretty early on where they'd have five days on two days off. Um, we did that from early April until the 4th of July when we were finally able to go back to a five day work week. Um, when we shut this store down, I moved over to the warehouse facility and helped pick and pack orders for two and a half months. Um, and then in mid May, when we realized we'd be able to start reopening the store probably sometime in June and it turned out to be June 8th, um, I came back to Northampton, but, you know, Steve and I would spend the days picking and packing orders, moving inventory, working alongside our team there. And then we'd come home at night and try and run the rest of the business and do our regular jobs because, you know, we have our own set of responsibilities 40 hours a week here. Um, Steve is still in East Hampton every single day, every day, all day. Um, in fact, he was here in the office this morning and it's the first time we've been in our office here in Northampton together in, I don't even know how long. And I, I, I just said to him, I'm like, okay, you need to go back to East Hampton. I'm kind of used to having this space to myself now. But, you know, we had to go back on a seven-day work week in September. Massachusetts is going through another surge. We just rolled back our, um, you know, our, our phases. We had to take a step back. Um, so the store now can only have 40% capacity. We're hoping we don't get shut down. Um, 
you know, but we'll have to just see what happens. But it has been a really strange experience. I mean, Steve and I have left our house every single day, every day. I think I've taken one or two days where I haven't left. And that's only because I finally just had to stop um, or do laundry or something. Um, but it's been a very different pandemic experience than a lot of people. And I think there's going to be really interesting learning coming out the other side and what things stick as we move forward coming out, as the vaccines come out, what business practices will stay, what will revert back, you know, what will teams look like? I mean, I miss my team terribly. I, I haven't seen members of my team since March 10th. Um, I've seen them on Zooms and Google Meets, but we haven't been together. And while it works, I think for our business in particular, there's such collaboration on things that it's hard to be collaborative when you have to schedule a Zoom or a Google Meet instead of me walking two offices over to my entire marketing team and saying, hey, did you guys read this article about blah, blah, blah? Do you think that could work for us? Or, hey, these are some new colors we're considering. What do you guys think? Like, you can't be spontaneous like that. And you and I feel we've definitely lost something in our culture having to have everybody at home. Um, you know, we've had some people come back because some jobs can be done mostly remotely. Others, you need to physically be here. I've been a lot of people for a lot of months and I have no problem doing that. But again, so now I'm being other people, doing other people's jobs, which is fine. But then again, it's now we're back into the evening of trying to do the things that have to keep this business running. So it's, it's been, it's been a lot of challenges and, you know, there's a lot of, you know, my store team has been phenomenal. Reopening the store was a monumental three week endeavor, um, that they all jumped into wholeheartedly. And, you know, we're just really blessed that we have great customers who have respected every aspect of the protocols that we're required to follow. And, you know, I think I've only had to throw one person out of the store since we reopened in June who wow. just couldn't behave themselves. That's great though. That's really great. Yeah. Kudos to you for all of what you've done and um, hang in there because my goodness, this has really been hard, but um, we so appreciate you and all the retail shop owners who have been able to reopen safely for all of us. So thank you for for all of that. Yeah. yeah. And it's interesting. We have a rep who's been doing a Friday morning Zoom with New England stores that I've been participating in um, for months now. And it was really interesting to hear how each of them has sort of approached their reopening in their own way that works for them um, and how it's, it's morphed their businesses. And there's no, there's no cookie cutter formula for anybody. Um, and I, it, the, the innovation they've all shown is really just so fascinating to me. And I'm just so proud of, of all of them. Yeah, 100%. We um, at Craft Industry Alliance have a lot of brick and mortar shop owners, and I've heard very similar stories as well. And it's just, it's been the creativity and ingenuity of, of um, our retailers is really impressive, um, for sure. So amazing. Um, well, Kathy, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. It's been amazing talking to you. Well, thank you, Abby, for having me. It's been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. And thank you for listening to the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today's episode was sponsored by Makerist. Find your next best crafting project on makerist.com. Plus, support independent pattern designers from all over the world. You can read exclusive designer interviews and discover new patterns on their designer spotlight at makerist.com slash designer spotlight. 
Thank you so much, Makerists. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals. When you become a member of Craft Industry Alliance, you get in-depth coverage of craft industry news, the opportunity to connect with fellow professionals for advice and support, and access to an educational library filled with ideas, tools, and resources to help you as you build your business. Join us at craftindustryalliance.org. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.